So uh, tonight we will be in uh, Judges chapter 20. Uh, we will be reading the entire chapter. It's a long section. It's verses uh, of 48 verses. So it's going to take us and it's going to track. It's going to track us through. Essentially, what's going to happen is um, the uh, all of Israel is going to gather together. They're going to hear the testimony of the Levites, and you can leave it to you for the moment to spot the problems in the Levites' testimony. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you he's a little off. Um, and uh, and then uh, and then what follows uh, is um, basically the preparations for war um, as as the tribes turn against the tribe of Benjamin, and uh, and then uh, and then it'll be the battle, and Israel's going to fail twice, um, and then they're going to succeed. And so that's kind of, sometimes when you read these passages, you kind of get lost in it. And so I just want to give you kind of a little roadmap as, <laughs> as we get into this. And so, um, and so here we go. So we'll be reading from the English Standard Version, reading all of chapter 20, verses 1 through 48 in the book of Judges. Hear the word of the Lord. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took, I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred through all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come they may re repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, uh, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through, uh, through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voices of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out and uh, to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, all these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and acquired of God. Who shall go up for, first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the, the, the battle line against them at Gibeah. 
The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. And so the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. And then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until the evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in, in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up tomorrow, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush against Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah and at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were, were drawn away from the city. And at other times they began to uh, and as at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up from their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamor. And the men of Israel, who were in ambush, rushed out of their place from Mahareh uh, Giba. And there came from, against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Uh, then, then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. And now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that they made a great cloud of smoke to rise up out of the city, and the men of Israel would turn in battle. Uh, now Benjamin uh, had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, and they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them, and those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. Five thousand men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them, uh, and two thousand men 
of them were struck down. So all who fell that day in Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. long passage, but we always want to remind ourselves it's the only infallible part of the sermon today. So, we are dealing in uh, this section in Judges with some of the darkest material in the Bible, especially last week in the chapter, chapter 19. The book of Judges is not one that contains a happy ending. But as dark as the cloud may be at the, in the last chapters of the book of Judges, we do have silver linings on that cloud, especially in this chapter, as we see the judgment of God falling upon uh, the wicked and even wicked Israelites. But as we observe it, we find that the justice which rolls down also brings confusion. Why do the Benjaminites defend the men of Gibeah? Why don't they just give them up? Why do the Israelites fail twice before they succeed against the rebel Benjaminites? The chapter presents us with helpful principles with respect to thinking about how justice works in our own world. And, and this is a long chapter, but it basically can be divided into two sections. And verses 1 through 17 focus on, uh, on the preparation for war and what we can call a righteous and unrighteous forms of unity. And second, in verses 18 to 48, we wade into what I call the muddy waters of judgment and divine discipline in the real world. And so we're going to look at each of those sections tonight. And so first we begin uh, by considering the unity that shines through in this passage in verses 1 through 17. And there are two different types of unity we see in these first 17 verses. And we are encouraged by the example of the Israelite tribes as they gather together to seek a righteous kind of unity in verses 1 through 11. Now, right at the outset, though, uh, this unity is uh, formed around uh, um, a testimony that we can say has some very serious flaws, the testimony of the Levite. He tells the assembled Israelites what happened to him and his wife. Uh, he changes some details out, we, the reader, notice, uh, and, uh, and he changes some details. He leaves some things out. Uh, he, he leaves out the fact that the, the men who came to the house didn't want to kill him. They wanted to violate him according to their perverse pleasure. He also conveniently left out the fact that it was he who shoved his own wife out the front door. This Levite, who is supposed to be a man of God, to teach the people the ways of God, is, reveals himself, uh, confirms himself to be a despicable, evil, and prideful man. I would suspect, actually, his anger and outrage is simply due to his pride and that he would see the entire Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin destroyed, not for the sake of his wife, but for the sake of his own arrogance. But we have to trust that God will deal with that Levite himself because he disappears after that in the story. 
We do need to observe, though, positively the uncommon unity in, that we observe here in Israel. We are told in verse 1 that all the people of Israel came out and met at Mitzpah, a place whose name means the watch. Uh, it's kind of a good place for a military encampment to meet. It's oh, just, uh, just a few miles north of Gibeah. And, uh, and, and so he says, from Dan to Beersheba, they, they gathered together. That's like saying from New York to L.A., just that covers the whole country. And so remember, we're, I'm going to bring up a map here. So Benjamin is the little orange one kind of in the middle there. All right. Um, and, that's, and so I'll show you, I'll show you though, where. Uh, so Dan is in the north there. Uh, and remember Dan, we remember how the, the, the city of Dan was founded. We were told how that was founded by the wandering Danites who should have been in that nice little, um, what is that, a teal uh, near Judah on the left. <laughs> that, that's where Dan should have been. But since they're cowards and disobedient, uh, they just wandered around until they invaded uh, a, a, an area that, in Naphtali <laughs> and established their own city called Dan. That's also f- a future uh, place where a uh, golden calf will be placed by Jeroboam after the kingdom divides and how it leads Israel astray. And so, but from Dan to Beersheba, you can see down is down there in Simeon, uh, which is uh, located essentially in the borders of uh, the tribe of Judah. And so basically from north to south, they gather together, but um, it's more like this, if you can see that, just all the different arrows coming from these different uh, tribes. Uh, basically, it is a gathering of all the tribes, except for Benjamin, coming into this area. We have not seen this kind of unity in Israel for a very long time. We are told that 400,000 men gathered fit for war. Now, interestingly, uh, there's a few scholars, uh, some believing, some unbelieving, who say that number is way too large. There's no way that they had that many uh, uh, numbers. Now, we have to admit that numbers in the Hebrew can be a little confusing. Uh, Scholars will tell you um, that they can be a little bit of a challenge in how uh, the Hebrew... Uh, numbering system works, um, uh, and, uh, and uh, but uh, I remember when we were going through the book of Exodus, and we're, and we're, the population of Israel coming out of Exodus is estimated not at a maximum capacity, but kind of like a, a conservative estimate of, of Israel at that time might be 800,000 or 1.2 million uh, and so even upwards as up to 2 million, as has been estimated, came out of Egypt. Now, this is a good time after coming out of Egypt. And so I actually don't find it that, uh, that uh, crazy to think that 400,000 men could do that. Now, it is unusual. That is an unusually large force for an ancient uh, world. I mean, in, in those days and even up till, um, I mean, Roman armies, things like that, if you could get a force of 60,000, that was an impressive force. Okay, so there, there is something exceptional going on here. But that's kind of the point, right? There's an exceptional evil that has been at work in Israel, and we see this exceptional and uncommon unity in Israel as they gather together to expunge the evil from their midst. Uh, and so they are united in number, but they are also united in their cause. In response to the flawed testimony of the Levite, they say that they have come to execute justice and to do so swiftly. They said, we're not even going to go home until this is done. Uh, And then they commit 10%, essentially, of the men there 
to providing logistical support. And that might, be an, <coughs> might seem like an odd detail to include here, but if you are going to have a large military force, especially an exceptionally large military force, well, if you don't have food to feed them, they're not going to last very long, or they're at least going to be very slow. They're going to be distracted uh, by having to go forage for their own food. That was one of the big things when, uh, when Rome was um, uh, going into France and warring against the Gauls. One of the big advantages that the Roman armies had was that they had figured out supply lines. They had figured out how to keep their soldiers supplied, uh, and, they had this, and, they, and that was one of the most important things that they figured out was logistics. And so, because if you could feed the Roman army metaphorically and literally, then, then they didn't have to do what the, Gaul, the Gauls in France had to do, which they would have to spend time every day searching the forest for food and then go fight for their lives. <laughs> and, so, uh, and so that was one of the reasons Rome was so successful, not only because their battle tactics, not only because uh, several reasons, but one of the key ones was logistics. And so they said, look, we are so committed to this. We are setting up logistical support to make sure this gets done. And, um, and so we have Israel united together against wickedness and ready to do swift justice and to do it thoroughly. They have committed not only in word, but it's like kind of like you know someone's really committed when they put their money in, right? They've actually committed. Uh, they've got skin in the game now. So uh, this is a good and righteous unity, the kind that we have not seen in the book of Judges for some time. But there is a tragic aspect to this unity because it's a unity that is nece necessary, but it's necessary to be united against their own brothers, other Israelites. And, we, and, and, the, and the astute reader will ask, how long has it been since there was this kind of unity against the Canaanites? But here we have unity against an entire tribe of Israel. And so we have a righteous kind of unity here, but we also have another kind of unity, which uh, leads us to uh, a, a principle that we need to avoid foolish unity that is exemplified by the Benjaminites in verses 12 through 17. At first, the, the demand comes from Israel quite fairly uh, uh, that, uh, that Benjamin only needs to pr produce the, the, the men of Gibeah who committed this heinous and evil deed so they can be put to death and evil can be expunged from the Israelite community. But uh, the Benjaminites, uh, for them, blood is apparently thicker than sin or the law of God, and they refuse. We aren't told about any moral evaluation about how the Benjaminite leaders felt about the men of Gibeah, um, uh, but all we know is that they just were unwilling to hand them over. So instead, they raised their own forces, 26,000 men, uh, with Gibeah providing 700 of its own elite warriors, all trained to fight left-handed. Now, that may also seem like an odd detail in this chapter. Who cares what hand they fight with? But if you've ever, you know, if you watch sports, you, you know, you're watching a baseball game, they always talk about a left-handed hitter, a left-handed pitcher, and how hard it is, how it changes the game. Well, think about swords and, swords and shields. Typically, you have a shield on your left hand, and you're used to the swords coming this way. Well, if they're coming at you in the left hand, they're coming, swords are now coming this way. And so uh, how do you fight like that? You know, so it, so it does throw them off. 
and, and, they're, and if you're not trained to fight in that way. Also says that they can sling stones with pinpoint accuracy. Now, when we see you know, slinging stones, a lot of times we think of David and Goliath, and then we also have those misconceptions that David was like three years old with a Dennis the Menace slingshot, and he took out a giant, you know, or he was a tiny little asparagus for our VeggieTales watchers. All right, so um, that's not... But that's not what the case was. David was probably 14 or 15 years old. And these, and these are also trained adult warriors who are slinging one-pound stones at estimated uh, around 90 miles an hour. And they could do it accurately. That's a lot of damage. And so deadly, deadly damage. But the Benjaminites, despite their impressive warriors, are being fools. They don't need to show such foolish loyalty to those in their midst who have done such wicked things just because they are of the same tribe. In fact, it is the responsibility of Benjamin to expel the evil from the midst of their own tribe. And in the end, this foolish unity of brotherhood that overlooks evil will bring destruction upon their own heads. And, but we are encouraged to, uh, from, this, from, the idea, from this presentation of examples of righteous unity and foolish unity, to seek unity in the church. You, we hear a lot about that word unity in modern times. Uh, but unity is not a virtue in itself. Unity is not a good thing for its own sake. And to, people can be unified in evil. They can be unified in foolishness just like the Benjaminites who refused to do justice. But we also see the good kind of unity around doing justice and expelling evil from the midst of the people of God. That's a good kind of unity. And so as Israel is described coming together as one man, so in the New Testament the church is described as being one body with Christ as our head. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity in love under Christ. In Judges, here there is a unity to execute judgment, to purge evil from the midst of God's people. And in the church, our unity is similarly manifold. We have unity in our gospel. We are unified in the gospel of grace for sinners, the good news. We, are, we have unity that, is, that we are one body. One, we have one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, as the apostle says in Ephesians 4. In a word, our unity is Christ himself. We are in him and share communion with one another because he connects us together. He saves us. He rules us. He blesses us. And for more information on that, come to Sunday school because, uh, because it's on union with Christ. <laughs> so, uh, so I highly encourage you to check that out. It is Sinclair Ferguson on union with Christ is some of the best material you will ever, ever get. Come to Sunday school. <laughs> so. But, that, but the unity is exclusive that we have as Christians. It is exclusive to other religions. It is exclusive to other faiths. 
outside of the one true faith. And our unity takes sin seriously. And so our unity is in the church is shown by love, forgiveness, patience with one another. But our unity is also exercised by church discipline to correct or, if necessary, to remove someone who refuses to repent of wickedness or sin. We must beware of becoming a church that would protect its members or even a pastor who has done evil things because of some misguided loyalty, some misguided commitment to unity. We are encouraged to avoid foolish unity and to seek true righteous unity in Christ as the people of God, encouraging and training in holiness while correcting and even expelling evil from the midst of the body. And so now we move to the second portion, the larger portion, but actually will it'll actually take us less time, believe it or not, <laughs> than the first portion. Um, but as we are uh, wading into the muddy waters of judgment and discipline in verses 18 to 48. Now, when I say muddy, I don't mean it's muddy in terms of God's holiness or clarity about what's right or what's wrong. What I mean is when, when, when judgment is, uh, and discipline are executed or take, are actually enacted in the real world, it can get muddy and it can get confusing. It can get weird. It can really throw us for a loop. And we see that here in this text. The basic outline of this section is pretty simple. Israel seeks the Lord and goes after the tribe of Benjamin twice. They're defeated twice. And then the third time they succeed and they rout the Benjaminites. What gets confusing about this passage, and we'll get into it in, the, in, in verses 29 through 48, is he, the author describes the battle and the ambush, and then he kind of does it again. That's why that passage is a little confusing, because he talks about the ambush, and then he goes back into the ambush again and delves deeper into the logic of the ambush. Uh, but we'll get there. So, but verses 18 to 28, and these first two initial failures, uh, present to us a confusing conundrum of initial failure when trying to do what God calls us to do. The Israelites ask the Lord, who will go up first? And for the first time in a long time, I mean, if you're reading the book of Judges, I remember reading this passage, and, and, and it was refreshing to hear the words of the Lord. Where they went, it's just, it said like, just in the book of Judges, there's a drought of seeking after the Lord. And it says, they sought after the Lord. Who shall go up first? And the Lord responded and said, Judah shall go up first. This battle has divine approval. They haven't had that one in a while. Also, uh, this is very similar to the, the, the beginning of the book of Israel when they were, uh, I mean, the book of Judges when Israel was driving out the Canaanites. But now a tribe of Israel has effectively replaced the Canaanites. They've become the Canaanites. And so Israel is making war against them. They go up twice and they lose twice. So what gives? God told them to do it and then they lost <laughs> two times. And they were devastated. Well, apparently God is using this as an opportunity not only to enact justice against the Benjaminites in Israel, but to call all the rest of Israel, his own, who are trying to serve him, to call him and draw them to himself. Because in their failure, what did they do? They wept before the Lord. They fasted. And they prayed. 
They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. They, they drew near to God. I mean, imagine if they had just gone against the Benjaminites, just wiped them out. Well, they probably would have been tempted to say, we did it. But God is showing them that despite their large force, the fact that they have 400,000 versus 26,000, their success is the Lord's doing alone. And so if when they, when they get that victory, they know it is because of the Lord, not because they had 400,000 men. It is only after the Israelites have been appropriately humbled and taught to rely upon God that he gives them the victory. And, uh, but thankfully, after two initial defeats, we, uh, we behold the, the truth and power of God's judgment against uh, the Benjaminites in verses 29 to 48. Uh, and now there's an interesting note here in verse 35 because it is absolutely clear, the author says, that it was the Lord who defeated the Benjaminites. But he did it by means of the ambush. But also, if you start thinking about it, the ambush wouldn't have worked if they hadn't failed twice. So that means that God used the initial two failures of Israel to bring them the victory in the third try. They set a bunch of men behind Gibeah. They went out to fight, and after the initial skirmish, they ran away, drawing the enemy from their city. And the Benjaminites had already seen this twice, and they've won twice, so who doesn't love a good third victory, right? Who doesn't like winning all the time? And so they chased the bait, and then the ambush was sprung, the city was taken, the smoke went up, the city burned, and the other Israelites stopped running, turned around, and fought. Now the Benjaminites knew they were surrounded, it was over, and they were routed. Of the 26,000 men from Benjamin, only 900 remained. And so again, God used the previous failures to capitalize on the arrogance of the enemy and enable his people to carry the day. Here we have a case of what people like to call dual causation, but we simply call it God using means to accomplish his purposes. All this fighting, failing, and succeeding reminds us, and we need to take to heart, that seeking the kingdom of God is not for the faint of heart. And if you heard Jesus' words, you know that. Jesus told his church to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all that other stuff you worry about like eating and clothing, will be added unto you. But as we seek the kingdom of God, as we seek to walk in truth and righteousness, we encounter so many obstacles and defeats along the way. We, as we embrace our callings as, as, as men and women, as husbands, wives, fathers and mothers, as citizens, employees, employers, called to live in, godly, in a godly manner, seeking to live according to the ways of Christ and his calling upon our lives. But in that righteous endeavor, that righteous mission, as we're taking that up and seeking it out on a daily basis, we encounter defeat and failure. And we don't always know why. 
The one time we did all the things and we checked all the boxes and we did it all right, it all went wrong. And the time that we did it all wrong, God somehow made it right. What's going on? But we are encouraged here to take heart. Because if God can use the failures of Israel to give them success, then surely he can use our failures to prepare us, to humble us, to teach us to seek after him, and to advance his cause in the world. It is an odd thing that when we take up our calling to make disciples of the nations, indeed to seek after the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, we know in our minds this is not going to be easy. We know it's going to be difficult. We face opposition outside of us and inside of us. We, we, we are told by the scriptures that we need to put on spiritual armor because we're in a battle. And yet, how often are we surprised, shocked, even appalled when we are met with hardship? Shocked that despite our commitment to God, he has allowed this difficulty to come into our lives, that, that, that we have been defeated in our efforts thus far. This text teaches us that in face of those defeats, in face of those setbacks, to not give up seeking the righteous way. To continue to strive, and even in view of our failures, to know that God can use those to embrace, to, to teach us, to humble us, to, to draw us to himself. And we trust that he will give us the victory as we press forward in faithfulness and reliance upon his word and his Holy Spirit. So as dark as the last chapter is here, we have a bright silver lining on this dark cloud. Though God's people may have become a very corrupted, his image still shines through. And so we need to seek the unity of the church that is found only and truly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To take up our calling as members of his body. And to let us not be discouraged by initial defeats in our pursuit of godliness. Rather, when we experience that, let us follow. It's not very often that you can say, let's do what the Israelites did. Right? But in this case, we can. Let us follow their example. Humble ourselves. Run to God. Cry out to him. Draw near to him. Because we know that in Christ, because of his death and his resurrection, that, the, that we already have the victory. And that God will bring us in the fullness of victorious joy in his due time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in times where we actually are seeking after the right thing, but we have just been met with defeat after defeat, that your word encourages us to press forward, to not abandon the path, but to turn to you, to lift our eyes to you, to place our hope fully on you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would Lord, for any of us that's discouraged tonight, we're trying, we're trying, and we just can't seem to follow. We just can't seem to, to do it. Lord, we, let us remember that we are called by grace and beloved of the Lord, apart from anything that we do. But also, Lord, may we not lose heart. 
May we continue to drive forward and see your mercy and goodness in our failures. That you draw us near to you. That you declare your love over us. That you strengthen our hands and our feet. That we can run the race. If we will only set our eyes upon Christ. So Lord, we pray that we would tonight. And that as we leave from here tonight, as we get up tomorrow and we enter into a day full of, full of struggle and turmoil, Father, that we would set our eyes on Jesus and that we would run the race set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand.